you have a Bible, please first actually open it to Romans 1. That's where we're going to start. We're doing a series on Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 13, but before we turn and look at the status of David's household, we first have to consider a few things from Romans. Paul's going to instruct us a bit. But before we go there, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of your son, who is here with us now, who is ministering to us even now, who is uh, at your right hand, who is hearing our prayers, who is receiving our offerings, our sacrifices, our songs, our prayers. We know, Lord God, that you are transcendent and beyond comprehension, and yet you are eminent and near. You are ours and we are yours. And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would instruct us, that we would see you more clearly, that we would see ourselves more clearly, that we would turn from the right hand and from the left and go straight on to to the cross and to the empty tomb and to your throne where you await us. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son and amen. Now, Jesus instructs us, He says, pray this. He says, pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, why does he do that? It's because there is an evil one. There are forces aligned against us. There are dangers. There are are evil and wicked things in this world from, from which we need protection. And he tells us to pray this because the only one that can protect us from the evil one is him. And as was read for us this morning, you you see in Israel's history that they would return to Egypt, they would turn to chariots, they would turn to horses, they would turn to a good time. All sorts of things for protection and comfort apart from God. And what did God do to them? Well, what he did is he let them go. So, okay. All right, you, you think Egypt's going to do a better job? Go to Egypt. And how did that work out for them? He says, okay, you're, you're going to go under every, uh, under every high hill, and you're going to lay under every tree and, and whore yourself with all the idols. Go, go, and see what they can do for you. And, and every time he did that, it was a grace. It was a compassionate thing that he was doing. Why? Because he wanted his people to see there is no other protection, there is no other safety, there is no other comfort but him. Proverbs 4.27 says, Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Why? Because there are dangers in the gutters. Do you know why societies construct roads across countries? Because just wandering out in the wilderness is not a very safe idea. The Romans went to great lengths to make very sophisticated roads that were, first off, short, but provided protection from what? The wilderness and the wild things that live in the wilderness. And what Proverbs is telling us to do is that, yeah, you know, is reminding us there is a highway to heaven that the, that the Lord God has paved. And upon it, we, if we travel straight on, we will actually reach our destination. But if we go wandering off to the right and the left... We will end up in the gutter, or worse, we will end up in the wilderness where there are lions, where there are tigers, where there are things that will devour us. Now, if we turn from God's protection, if we turn from it towards evil and sin, we abandon the safety of God. 
And sometimes, to varying degrees, the Lord disciplines us by removing his shelter that we might seek his protection and return to the straight and narrow path. And this is a hard truth. This is not the kind of thing you're going to go down the street in here at the Evangelist Church. Occasionally, God disciplines you for sin by allowing you to commit sins. Right? If you're committing sin and you're walking in high-handedness and, and you are ignoring him and you're ignoring his word, he say, listen, I need to get there. They don't understand what they're doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let, I'm going to let some of the evil get them. I'm going, to let, I'm going to withhold some of the protection. And hopefully as they continue to go down this path and see how destructive it is and how unsafe it is, perhaps what they will do is cry out and come back to me. And we're very uncomfortable with this kind of God. Right? And we, we don't know that this is what he does. We ignore this part of the scriptures. And so we end up in a country where they're slaughtering babies in the womb, where the strength of the dollar is the strength of America, where since the end of World War II, a mighty and just cause, we have looked to what to give us protection? Nuclear bombs. Right? We're fine. We got B-52s. We're fine. Look at the strength of the dollar. We're fine. We got the CIA. How's the sexual revolution going for us? How's the culture war going for us? It's not, a, it's not a mystery that these things are aligned. The mid-century, when we ceased being a regional power and became a world power, and all of our strength and all of our might, and we returned to Egypt, and we turned from the God, our, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who founded this country, we turned from all of those things that we had known, all of that glory, all of that goodness, all of that safety, all of that protection, and we turned to arms and we turned to bombs and we turned to economics, and how is it going for us? Now, this happens to nations, this happens to counties, this happens to states, it happens to households, and it happens to individual Christians. Okay, And, and where, <laughs> you're like a little America. Right? You're putting your safety and you're looking to other things besides the Lord God to protect you and to comfort you and to strengthen you. And God is said, okay, all right, try it. Go, try it. And after a time, you think, you know, I, I feel completely exposed. I feel completely unsafe. I feel like I'm wandering in the wilderness and I'm surrounded by lions. And God's like, yes, are you ready yet? Are you ready? Oh, okay, now, <laughs> now I'll send stampeding rhinos out towards you. Okay, do you, do you hear me yet? And if we turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 26, this is what it says. This is what happens to people, to nations that, that, re, that return their back on the safety of God. Romans 1, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And just so we're very clear as to how this has happened, how the trouble has come. It says in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God said, hey, okay, you don't want the natural order. You don't want the world I made. You don't want the things, you know, the world as I've created it. Fine, try that for a while. And how is the tranny thing going? Right? How is the sexual revolution going? How are the people, these people who are convinced at a young age, 
to transition. How is that going? No, our, our nation is full of increasingly of despair, of brokenness, of shame, of guilt. Look at the West. How is the West doing? The West is doing so badly that a large number of people in it think that Putin is the savior. That's how bad it's gotten. And I can testify from history that if you start looking to people like that to restore order and to restore goodness and to restore the Christian ethic, we have have serious problems. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you are sitting in the United States, and there are lions in the land. God has removed portions of his protection in increasing stages to try to get our attention And what I want today to do is for you to consider that as Americans, to consider that as Christians, to consider that in your own household. How how possibly are you part of the problem? How is is it possible that God has removed portions of his protection from you personally, from your children, from your spouse, from your house? And we're going to do this by looking at, at, at David and his house and what happened to it. Because it challenges all kinds of misconceptions we have. How could anything ever bad happen to innocent people like Tamar? How? Well, it's because all the men in her life have have turned from God, have turned from righteousness, have turned from goodness. And when that happens, when the leaders do that, when the men do that, women like Tamar are what? They're just a piece of meat to be devoured by lions. And don't we have a culture where... Christian and unchristian alike, men treat women like a bunch of pieces of meat. Man, this is heavy. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is intense. And I, what I do not want to do, even though you've seen how I've started, is sit here and talk about Joe Biden and the CIA. Okay? It, it's true that they are part of the, right? They're some of the lions that have been released upon us because we've turned from the living God. What I want you to consider is the fact that you perhaps yourself have wandered from the middle of the road and, and, and you are not paying attention to what's going on and, and you are increasingly going about without the help of God, without his protection. And what I want you to see is what's going to happen to your household if you persist in this way. In Psalm 51, once he was restored, David says, right, remember he admits, I have sinned, sin is always before me, and I've been doing it since the womb. And this is something that we have to understand. Sin isn't a possibility. It's something that is practically guaranteed. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Or what? It will rule over you. Now we think, you know, somewhere out there in this day, I'm sitting here at my table drinking my coffee or green tea or whatever it is, kombucha. And you think, you know, out there somewhere is some sin, maybe. And you're like, <laughs> no, it's Walk out your front door and look down at the ground right there. That is how close sin is. And he's, he's waiting. Come on. Come on. Come on out here. I'm going to get you. Sin is ever-present, and it is a real danger. And there's only one protection against it, and that is the Lord God. Okay? Your, your money, your guns, your conservatism, nothing is going to protect you from it. 
except God himself. That's the only protection. Psalm 56, verses 10 through 13. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows. To you, O God, I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, and I, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Right? That's how we get back on the road. That is our sure protection. Loving the word of God, thanking him, obeying him, going to him. He is our protection. He is our comfort. He is our safety. And if we leave him, we will leave safety and protection. And he will let us know that. He loves us too much. <laughs> he loves us too much not to let us realize that apart from him, it is a, an extraordinarily dangerous world. Dangerous to our, our bodies and dangerous to our souls. If we reject the safety of Yahweh, we are without protection. And sometimes God allows, because of sin, sin to come in and remind us of this. David has become a snake. He's taken the forbidden fruit of Bathsheba. Then he took her husband's life to cover up the sin. David has spoiled Uriah's garden and plunged his household into the consequence of sin, which is more sin. David is repentant, but the consequences for his actions remain. Part of what we're going to see here is even he wasn't never supposed to multiply wives. Deuteronomy 17 says the king shall not do it. Well, that itself is a sin that I, I have yet to see him repent of. And what we're going to see in this story is that having all these kids, <laughs> these power-hungry kids, who kind of know each other, but aren't, they are of the same household, but they're not of the same household, is part of the problem here. Okay, Because if, if Amnon and Tamar were not brother and sister, they could just for, be forced to get married. So David has already been sinning. David has already been going the wrong direction way back when he was in the wilderness, multiplying wives, which is something he wasn't supposed to do. Nathan told him, however, directly in 2 Samuel 12, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Out of his own house. Now, is he unjust? Is God unjust in doing this? Is he merciless in doing this? Is he ungracious in doing this? Samuel warned the people that the kings of Israel would be takers. That's what he said in 1 Samuel 8. These kings, you want a king? Fine. You want a king? You want to turn to the idol of a king? Fine. Do it. I'll allow that. But let me tell you right now, they're going to be takers. And what is David doing? He's succumbed to the temptation. He's taken people's wives. He's taken people's lives. And now what is his son going to do? He wants to be a king just like dad. So he's going to start going around David's own household and taking things. Why? Because he's prepping to be king like like the kings of the nations, just like David, just like Saul. You see how this is, is playing out. And God says, okay, all right, this is what you wanted. Let's have it. Let's do this. And his hope all along is what? Right? Why would God allow us to be torn? Why would God allow us to be attacked by the enemy? Because he wants us to run to him for safety. C.S. Lewis said, we shall be cured of our sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. And look at, the, <laughs> look at how far he's willing to go. How far is he willing to go with you then? That is a terrifying thought. If, if he's willing to go to the extreme he's willing to go to at Calvary, how far is he going to be willing to go with you and I? 
Oh, man. (laughs) We should listen to the rest of this sermon on our knees. The sorrow that comes to David's house is judgment, but it's also a warning. It's a warning. You, have, you, are, you are straying into the gutters. You are straying from the straight and narrow path. You have rejected my protection. And if you want to know what that's like, here you go. So now I'm going to read 2 Samuel 13, and then I'll explain in some detail what is going on. I'm going to avoid certain sure elements of this, but I would like to explain some of what's going on inside of this household so that you perhaps might see yourselves in it. So this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. This is, this is what has come to David's household because he's rejected God. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was a, as so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. The poor guy. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother, But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please... Speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out, bolted the door behind her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. 
But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now, we can see how this extends the tragic chain of events that have begun in chapter 11. We see, we see the connections, right? David calls Bathsheba to his personal residence. Amnon calls Tamar to his personal residence. You see father is, the father is acting like the son. The son is acting, I mean, like the father. We have another character here, like Michael. Tamar is like Michael. She's taken up in the power play of statecraft. She becomes merely a tool of men and their violent agendas. Her woes are a direct result of the moral failure of the men closest to her. Okay, you go on Pornhub. Why is it there? Not because those men necessarily have failed, but because there is an army of men out there somewhere who have failed. Right? The, the protection she had. Well, I can't get at her. May it be said of all the women in our congregation. May other, other men who have evil desires look at the women in our community and say, look, I can't even get at them. You're like, amen, right? Why? Because she's got her own virtue. I've got virtue. You all, all of the, the men in this church, all of our virtue are supposed to be like a stronghold. I also have guns. But, but my point is virtue, <laughs> virtue, okay? See, right? Well, automatically, we want to put our strength in what? She has protection. She's obviously a woman you can't get at. And God says, you know what, David? Do you want to know what you've done? Do you want to know how bad it is? Do you want to know what kind of example you're being to Israel? Boom, there goes, there goes the protection. He removes it. Now, what did Tamar do? What has Tamar done? She's just the plaything of foolish, wicked, evil men. And that's what happens to women when, when you have men who do not repent of their sin, who desire un, unnaturally things that they ought not, and who remove themselves Right? If you remove yourself from the protection of the Lord, those under your protection ought to worry. They ought to be afraid. Because you can only be a protection to them when you, when you are running to your protection, the living God. Now, the story, if you, if you look at some very interesting details, it starts with Absalom. It starts with Absalom and ends with Absalom. But Absalom's not even really a character in the whole thing. Because, right? And then you go immediately from Absalom to Amnon. And, and Tamar, or, uh, yeah, Tamar just seems like, I mean, is she important in this story at all? What, why are we talking about Absalom? Well, what this is telling us is, again, Tamar is just a plaything. Really what we're talking about is Absalom and his fall from grace and his rebellion against David and the fact that he's trying to steal the kingdom and the civil war that's coming, right? And so she is just a secondary character in this larger story. This is what happens to women when the men in their lives flee from the protection of the Lord. They cease to be a protection to them. Now, Tamar is implicitly portrayed as a woman of the word of God. She's wearing the, vir- the Virgil gowns. She appeals to the word of God. She appeals to the law of God. She appeals to reason. She appeals to morality. She's called beautiful, and, and, and when the Bible uses this word, it's not, it's not exactly what we mean necessarily. She is beautiful to look upon, but it's more than that. And there's not a lot of females in the Bible that are referred to this way. Some of them are Sarah in Genesis, and Rachel in Genesis, and Abigail in 1 Samuel. She is not, right? She is not even like Tamar, Tamar or I mean, I'm sorry, Michael. Michael was playing around. Michael was getting involved in the games that the boys were playing. Tamar isn't even like that. She is an upright and righteous woman who's staying out of all of that business. And she was safe until 
the men in her life fled from the safety of God. Now, encouraging Abnon, right? Where is the, the king is supposed to be raising a son who's going to be the heir apparent? But who's Abnon hanging around with? He's hanging around with Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, Amon's comp- uh, companion. It's also his cousin. And it says of him that he's a shrewd man. Now, this word is often used for genuine godly wisdom. Yet, as events will soon demonstrate, Jonadab's wisdom is of another kind completely, right? What you want are your sons reading Solomon's works. Let's read Proverbs and grow to become a king who's wise and upright. And is David doing that with Amnon? No. Amnon's companion is a man who looks, who's crafty, who's cunning, but is actually full of iniquity. It says in James 3, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right? What is Jonadab doing? He's a crafty man, but it's, it's not godly wisdom that descends from heaven. It's a counterfeit wisdom, just like Amnon's is a counterfeit love. Because how quickly does it turn to hate, right? It's clearly not love in the sense of true, biblical, upright, the kind of love a man ought to have who's walking with the Lord. It's lust is what it is. So you have false love. You have false wisdom. Both are perverse. And what, what Jonadab does now is he says, listen, get your dad involved in this which is ironic because his dad is in the center of this story because everybody is here and all of these things are happening because of David. But he says, hey, listen, pretend to be sick and then get your dad, okay? And say, oh, I need my sister to come and feed me. That, that's what I need. I'm, I'm, I'm sick and in order to be better, I need my sister to come and feed me and then I'll be better. And, David, and David's like, oh, okay. He's lost the discernment that he once had. He used to be able to see right, right through things. Oh, this is a trick, now he's like, oh, this seems good to me. Sure. Now, there's a bit of a puzzle here because it seems somewhat odd, right? Doesn't it? I'm sick. Call my sister. Get her in here and make me some cakes. Like, what kind of cake? <laughs> well, there's a big argument about this amongst the scholars that it's heart-shaped cakes that she is making, and it seems obvious about what's going on. The problem with that is that what is the shape of a heart? Right? Our sentimental Valentine's Day version of a heart didn't start till the 15th century. So that's not what it means. It means hearty cakes, dumplings, these cake, this bread that actually had medicinal powers. It seems to me that Tamar was the one capable of making this bread. She, she has a reputation. That's why this ruse is working. Jonadab knows what he's doing. Pretend like you're sick. Okay, then if you're sick, you're going to need Campbell chicken soup and crackers. Right? You need the saltines, the special saltines, in order to feel better. And David's like, oh, oh, okay, so then what I'll do is I'll go and get Tamar. She's the one who makes the Campbell soup and the, and the special saltine crackers. And we can tell this because earlier, right, when Jonadab and Amnon are talking, they say cakes, but then David says go and make food, and then she comes and makes cakes. So clearly he didn't need to explain to make cakes. He's sick and so he needs food. Oh, the food you give a sick person is cakes. Does this make sense? It's very, it, it reveals a great deal of what's going on here and why the ruse actually worked. Because it would seem super random if Tamar wasn't the person who took care of sick people to suddenly be like, oh, can you send over my gorgeous half-sister because I'm not feeling so hot. But she's hot, so send her over. Right? That, that would not work. 
But it se- there seems to be a familial culture here in which when you get sick, Tamar's the one who nurses you back to health because she makes this very special food, right? This is very common, in our, right? We understand. Mama makes a special kind of food when we're sick that our, our daughters and sisters learn. Now, when Amnon and Tamar are alone in the privacy of their, his residence, suddenly now... I can't feed myself, he says. You know what I need to do is lie down in my bed and you need to feed me. So send everybody out. And, and, and what's interesting here is she seems very naive, except I would, the fact that they, they don't use her name. And the reason I think that they don't use her name is because she's a very passive character here. She lives in a culture where the boys tell you what to do and so you do it. Right? And up till now, has she had any reason not to trust people? She's not naive. I wouldn't call that naivete. I would say, you know what she's used to is all the men in her life being safe. And they have ceased to be safe, and commentators still, even now, want to put some sort of blame on her. There isn't any blame for Tamar, though. She's there. She's a passive character. And up till this point, everybody in her life has been a safe and good man. And now you've got David, who's so corrupted with his own sin, he can't see straight. You've got Amnon, who's, who's so sick with lust. He was actually physically sick over it. Now he's pretending to be sick. And she said, oh, this is what I do. I help people. It's not naivete. Okay? It's abuse from start to finish. Instead of taking the food, however, he grabs her and begs her to lie with him. And now Tamar is going to fight for her life. But she's going to use reason and she's going to use the word of God, just like Jesus was tempted in the garden, right? Just like his life was attacked. He used the word of God. He used logic. And that's what we're going to see here from Tamar. She resists both verbally and physically. The first word she says is no. Okay, there's no ambiguity here as to what everybody being on the same page. She says no. She goes on to say no four more times. She directly ordered him to not violate or humiliate her. That's the word, violate or humiliate. You can, you can translate it either way. She then appealed to his conscience, reminding him that what he was pursuing was a wicked thing and should not be done in Israel. This is, we're Israel. This stuff shouldn't happen, brother. This is a wicked and vile thing that you want to do. She's appealing to him on the basic basis of ethics. Tamar's use of the phrase, is not done, and an outrageous thing, the, the, the very words she uses are the words that were used in Genesis 34 at the rape of Dinah. And the reason that she's doing this is because she's trying to remind him. Remember? Remember? In Genesis? Right? I, know, I knew you were at catechism class, the same catechism class I was when we were all growing up. And, and I'm going to use these very specific words for two reasons. One, that was wicked and vile, and he was a non-Israelite, and you're acting like that now. Secondly, don't you remember that her brothers killed him? Which is very clever of her. First off, this is wicked, don't do it. Second off, the guy was murdered. Okay? Hello? But he ignores all of this. Now, this sordid reference, or this reference to a sordid chapter in patriarchal history doesn't work. She then appeals to the fact that, you know, if you do this to me, there will be a shame upon me that I cannot get rid of. Right? So now she's appealing to his compassion. If you're not going to do this because it's the right thing, at least th- what am I going to do if you do this? Where am I going to go? What am I going to have? Now, the last tr- trick that she tries, right? She's 
so far it hasn't been tricks. She's appealed to his conscience. She's appealed to his compassion. She's reminded him of the word of God. And the last thing that she tries is actually a trick. And it's very clever. Okay, he says, she says, okay, you know, just, just hold off for a minute. I'm sure my dad will give, right? If you want access to me, full access all the time, I will be yours. You just go to the king and ask him, and I'm sure that he will grant you permission to marry me. Now, he's clearly shown that he does not know the word of God. She does, though, so this is a trick. There's no way that David would give them in marriage to one another. It says in Leviticus 18.11, you are not to uncover the nakedness of a father's wife's daughter. It says in Leviticus 18.9, that you are not to marry a sister, even a half-sister, even if she's raised in a separate household. So she knows the word of God. He's not going to go for this, David. But you know what? David will at least come down here and get involved in the situation. So she's trying this last desperate measure. She has no intention of marrying him at this point. She doesn't really want to. She's just trying to get out of this situation. She's very shrewd. It's, it's in, in this desperate moment, you see in several moments here that Tamar rises to the occasion and, and addresses things and deals with it, and she doesn't freak out. She handles it like a wise, upright, and prudent woman. Right? This is why it's been so hard to get at her. <laughs> she had the protection of the men, and then when it comes to it, right, she's not easily swayed into doing this thing. Now, there's no ambiguity in what follows. In fact, the English translation softens it even. It mentions the fact that he has superior strength. It mentions the fact that he seizes her. And usually, when this kind of thing occurs, they say he lay with her. But that's actually not what it says in Hebrew. It says he laid her, which is a violent way of describing what occurs. Right? There's no ambiguity here. This is not consensual. This was not okay. And Tamar did not want to do it. And it's extraordinarily the opposite of Bathsheba, who seemed to play along with the whole thing. Now, what we see here, how do we respond? Well, now he hates her. He hates her now more than he loves her. In fact, he says, this woman, get this woman out of my presence. And Tamar says something that's outrageous to modern readers. He sa- she says, listen, this thing you're doing now is actually worse than what you just did. Now, as a modern male reader, I'm like, is it, though? I mean, Really? I would want to get away as fast as I could. But there is cultural pressure here. If, if, she, if he isn't going to marry her, who is? And in this sense, he doubles down on David's sin, and he, he takes the woman that he should not take, and then he murders her. Because he hates her in his heart, which Christ said is murder. And he takes from her any hope of having any kind of life. And she would rather be married to this guy under these circumstances, because in that culture, it's not like she can go on and become the CEO of Starbucks. Well, you know, I spent this terrible, shameful thing happened to me when I'm young. I'm spoiled goods now, so you know what I'll do is I'll start my own company. I'll go and work for myself, and I'll make my own household, and I'll rise up out of this. No, if she can't get married, right, she doesn't even go back to her father's house because of the shame. She has to go live with her brother. She's appealing him. Don't do this. This is even worse, because not only have you shamed me, not only have you humiliated me, not only have you created this chaos in, in, right, in David's household, now you're going to just, ch- what do you think is going to come of this? Chucking me out the door. And her nobility here is greater than her nobility up to this point. Because she gets the culture, she, she gets that, you know, and... and she learns something here that Israel's going to have to learn later because later the prophets are going, is going to tell the prophets are going to say, listen, you guys have lost the land. You've lost, you've lost Israel. 
God is going to take it away from you. He's going to send you into exile. You're going to eat your own babies, and terrible things are going to happen to your women. Okay? Why? Because you men have failed. And that's the history of Israel. And that, they're writing about this. This is what happened in David's own household that later leads to the whole nation experiencing this kind of trauma. And her nobility is a beautiful thing here. So what happens? He says, get her out of here. So the woman, they, they take her out of there. She leaves. She tears her clothes because her, her virginity has been torn from her. She, puts, she actually responds in a way as if a death has occurred because it has. And then it's, it's interesting in this culture, it's different than ours. She flees, like she's yelling out in the road as she's going. Because what she's doing is declaring that a crime has occurred. Okay, fine. She got away from this guy. She's now in the streets. She's covered herself with ashes. She's torn her clothes. What is going? Somebody should ask her, right? Usually the virgins don't tear their robes, signifying they're a virgin, putting ash on their forehead, screaming or running down the road, weeping out loud. This doesn't usually occur. So she goes to her brother's house, and it says that she is a desolate woman. And this is a word used in Isaiah 49.8 for land that is abandoned and neglected. And what, what does Absalom say? Now, I want to be careful here because it seems that Absalom is callous. He is callous, but that's not the only thing that's going on, right? What, what are they going to do to Amnon? Well, if you go and you look at the law, what he's got to do is pay 50 shekels. Now, for a king's son, what's 50 shekels? 50 shekels is nothing. 50 shekels is I give, I give you the $20 bill I hide in my shoe, right? Fine. It's not, it's, the fine is nothing. They can't be married because they're related, Right? So he, he loses the ability to become king, but what's that even, right, when you live in a palace? And you still are a, a commander in the army and this kind of thing. So what Absalom is doing, really, we find out later, it's a little shocking, he does actually care what's occurred. He's very angry about it. But his way of dealing, he, he, he thinks in his own mind, he's concealing what he's really thinking, which is murder. And, and it, you know, he's going to make hay out of this because he's going to use it as an opportunity to get a few other things done that he wants to. But he, it's not nearly as callous as it appears because he thinks in his own mind, his own reason, his own fallen understanding that he is, in fact, going to get his. And he's going to defend her. And later he has a daughter named Tamar. He doesn't live to see her grow up. But you can tell the affection that he has for his sister. And, and when you give a name like that to a, a, the next generation, it's almost like a second chance on life. And so he takes a great deal of compassion. It seems very harsh here. Now, David, the only thing it says of David is that he's very angry. Oh, okay. He's emotional. Super. But he doesn't do anything. Now, perhaps he's discerned the parallel with his own sin, and he's reluctant to punish another person for something he himself has done. And here, this is the first thing I want to warn against. If we commit sins, there is occasionally this temptation to be like, well, you know, who am I to throw stones? Live in glass houses. I'm a sinner, he's a sinner. And if that is what David is thinking, it is a great wickedness. And this is what habitual sin in our lives, not dealing with the sin in our lives, does. It makes us ineffectual at actually combating sin. Now, you are, if you, right, you commit sins, fine. That does not disqualify you from dealing with other people's sins. What it requires is that you handle your sin, and as it says in Galatians, right, those who are spiritual, go and restore someone trapped in sin. So if you deal with your own sin like David has, he should be, it should be no problem for him to address this. 
We're not told why he doesn't do anything. But this is a possibility. Perhaps he's like, well, it looks an awful lot like me. The Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, tells us that he doesn't do anything because he loves him. That's also a possibility. That's the tradition. The tradition amongst the Midrash and the Jewish commentators is the fact that David doesn't do anything here because he loves his firstborn son, which if, that, if that's really the reason, that's even worse. He can't force them to get married. A 50, or, you know, a 50 shekel fine is nothing. But wh- who has he become like here? If you remember, in the book of Samuel, Eli's sons were condemned for sleeping with the dedicated virgins that served in the tabernacle. That was 1 Samuel 2.22. And like Eli, David stands by, weak, ineffectual, failing to bring justice to his own daughter. He's become Eli. So it's, okay, you know, he wrote Psalm 51. He repents of, or, yeah, he repents of his sins. God says, I forgive you. But look at what he's become. And, and, and how, right, he won't even bring justice to his own daughter. Now, l- ladies, let me ask you a question. Because the story is going to develop from here. If you're sitting at home, it's, you're in Israel, and you hear about this happening, you're going to think, you know, that is a man who really is going to protect us. Is that what you're going to think of, of the king of Israel? Okay, so later when Absalom comes along, he's trying to steal everyone's vote, you're going to say, like, you know what? Absalom seems to care. He's present. He's concerned about us. He wants to bring justice. David, he can't even protect and give justice to his own daughter. Who's going to follow him at this point? Right? Right? And, and if, I, if I go home and I'm sitting there with my wife and she's like, we can't follow this guy. Look at him. He can't even give. I, you know what I heard happened? You know what he did? Nothing. We can't follow this man. We need someone who's going to bring justice. We're going to be, we need someone who's going to protect us. And so who do they turn to? Absalom. That's how bad David is. He's an Eli. He's driving Israel into the arms of another king. Okay. This is what's happened to David's household. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. Now, here's my question. This is an honest question as your pastor. Have you noticed lately, perhaps that you're committing a sin that you, know, that you usually wouldn't have a trouble with? Is there something that's popped up in your life and you thought, you know, where did that come from? I would suggest perhaps pressing on that a little bit and thinking, you know, I wonder if this is happening to me, a thing I've never had a problem with, because of um, this thing over here that I do have a problem with that I am ignoring. When David is running around committing adultery and murdering the man whose wife he violated... Who's watching? The boys. The boys are like, oh, this is how statecraft works. You know what kind of counselors I need is Jonadab. This seems wise, upright. So all along, he was sowing the seeds of the destruction of his own house, right? And, and so God comes along and says, a sword's not going to depart from you. And these terrible things, the women in your house are going to be violated in public, right? Terrible things are going to break out. And he was, he was already sowing those seeds. God came along and says, Listen, this is the consequence of what you have done. It's not like God is like, oh, I'm going to add this thing. I'm going to, from heaven, make it so that this occurs to you. That's not how the sovereignty is working here. David had already set this stuff in motion. And so you go back to Psalm 51. You know what I don't see there? Is any, any kind of statement about his household. Not to criticize the word of God. But this is why it's become a psalm, very individualistic psalm. But what about his sons? 
right? What, what about them? God says a sword's coming to your own house. Now, all of a sudden, his sick son needs his sister to come over and make, take care of him. He wouldn't stop and think, I wonder if this is what he meant. He's lost his discernment. He's lost his ability to comprehend. He's, and then when the sin happens, he doesn't do anything. And what happens to us is that when we ignore the obvious problems or what should be the obvious problems, God's like, you know what? I have to send a letter to this guy. I need, to, I need to get his attention. I need to call him. I need to get his focus up here so that he can see that he's wandering off the road into the gutters. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, we can ignore even pleasure. Right? That's, we don't give thanks to God. We can ignore pleasure. What's pleasure? Whatever. We get used to it. We get entitled. Forget about it. It doesn't really communicate anything to us. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So in the United States right now, could you imagine God getting a bigger megaphone? Could you imagine how much louder he would have to shout on it in order to rouse us from our apathy, our spiritual and religious apathy, we have run so far from his protection, you think it can't get any worse. And then they double down. And then he's like, you know what? I, let's just take one more load. Now what are we, right? What's left? Where is he going to go from here? We're devouring ourselves internally. Everybody is super confused about what a person is, or a man is, a woman is, whatever. It's, it's chaos. Well, the only thing left now is for Babylon to come. So... Being Americans, we ought to be terrified of where this is going because nobody is listening. The, the United States is not listening. God is on the megaphone. He's like, hello? And so we ought to repent of our national sins. We ought to be talking about this because it's not going well. It's going in a very bad direction. Now, I want to, and this is, I'll finish with this personally again. I want you to go home, and I want you to think. I want you to pray. I want you to consider. The sins that are going on in your household, the sins that are going on in your own hearts and minds, are you dealing with them, or is it progressing? It, right? Does, does it feel like you're in, increasingly out, right? less and less protection? Now, this is all the soft-hearted people. I love you. You're going to be like, oh, you know what? It's me. That's me. And I love you guys. And I wish I could go door to door after a sermon like this and be like, you're not the one I was talking about. <laughs> because I hear things, like, right? Tender-hearted people hear this and they think, you know, it must be me. And we get down and we put ash on our forehead and we tear it. But there are Christians who are like David. And they've been sending up a storm. They don't care anymore. And their kids are all watching. And now, right? And now it's spreading. And you're like a little miniature United States. And God is on the megaphone trying to get your attention, and you're not listening. And so how much louder is he going to have to talk? Right? There, Satan is a prowling lion, and sometimes God lets us hear his growl from over through the trees. And you think, well, what is that? Well, I better go back home. I better go back to the fortress. If you ignore the growl and you keep walking, all of a sudden you hear the lion roar, and you think, oh, man, that's terrible. I have to run back to my safety. Or if you ignore it, you keep going, then all of a sudden there is the lion. Right? And so he gives you a scratch. And you right? either run back to the fortress, or you're like, oh, I can take a lion. David did it. And next thing you know, you're being chomped on. 
And you go, okay, I'm going to get away and run away now because <laughs> I'm not winning to the safety. Or you keep going, and next thing you know, the lion swallows you whole. And that's what God is trying to warn us about. Your household will be swallowed. You will be swallowed whole by the devil unless God saves you from him. And you either run to him, he's your only safety, he's your only comfort, he's your only protection, or he'll be like, you know what, try those other things. Let's see how they work. And in his grace he does that, because what does he want at every stage for us to run back to the fortress and hide ourselves there? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your grace. We pray that we would, like David, repent of our sins. Lord God, that we would consider the effect that our sins are having on our household, that we would consider our national sins. Lord, we know that you are crying out to us by by a very large megaphone to repent and to turn to you and to seek your protection and your guidance and and the safety that we find in the shadow of your wings. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to comprehend and that we would not be a people self-deceived, that we would not be a people running from you, but that we would be a people running to you. And amen.